first year, oh, Daniel 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion, and had eagle's wings. Then, as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted from the ground, and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair on his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire had issued and came out before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel... My spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all of this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast which was different from the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them, until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth. It shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth, and trample it down, and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the other ones, and shall 
and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed in the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is an end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Lions and leopards and bears, oh my! You know, most preachers preach through the first six chapters of Daniel, and then they quit. And in half an hour, you will understand exactly why. John Calvin, the famous theologian, when he wrote his commentary on Daniel, he stopped after chapter six. And he was a very smart man. So I clearly am not, because we're continuing to Daniel 7 today. And what a chapter this is that Willis just read for us. In fact, this chapter overwhelmed me, and what was originally going to be only one week has become two weeks because I determined you didn't want me to preach for an hour and a half long sermon. I noticed you guys were silent on that one. That was, that was confirmation. Now, in the second half of Daniel, as we move from the first half of the book of Daniel into the second half, we're going to see that Daniel goes from the interpreter of visions and dreams to the receiver of visions and dreams. And in fact, we find him seeking out others, divine beings even, to interpret the visions for him. Now, friends, as we approach this vision of Daniel chapter 7 and all the other visions that are going to follow it, we need to follow two general principles. There are going to be two general principles that are going to drive my exposition of this vision and all the visions that follow. And the first is that not every tree is a climbing tree. And second, don't miss the forest for the trees. Not every tree is a climbing tree. And don't miss the forest for the trees. Now, I haven't become an arborist. You know, there's, there's a reason behind that. First, this idea, not every tree is a climbing tree. You see, some people, when you approach the visions of Daniel or any other visions that we find in the Bible, they want to climb every single tree in the forest, hoping to see a little bit further, maybe observing something unseen, maybe uncovering something that's still hidden. But friends, not every tree is a climbing tree. Not every tree can bear the weight of us stressing its branches. For example, Jesus tells a lot of parables in the gospel. And when we read those, we shouldn't climb all over every detail of Jesus' parables looking to find some hidden meaning. For example, in the prodigal son in Luke 15, when the son returns and the father puts a ring on his finger and gives him a robe and puts sandals on his feet, we shouldn't go over those details looking for hidden meanings. What is the doctrinal equivalent of sandals on the believer's feet? You know, what does it, the ring on this finger symbolize in the Christian life? 
Or in the parable of the Good Samaritan, when the Samaritan comes upon the injured man and he treats his wounds with oil and wine, it says, and then puts him on his donkey and then brings him to the innkeeper, we shouldn't waste our time climbing all over those details, trying to make some kind of one-to-one correspondence with the oil and the wine and the donkey. Who's the innkeeper? Friends, not every tree, not every detail is a climbing tree. Jesus told his parables, and a lot of the details weren't meant to have hidden meaning. They weren't given to us to discover. And in the same way, when we approach Daniel's parables, Daniel's visions, we should do it the same way. In both Jesus' parables and in Daniel's visions, the main points and the main characters are usually identified for us or explained for us And those are the trees we're meant to climb so that we can see further. Those are the details that can hold our weight. Those are the things that we can trust and be sure that we're standing and climbing on something firm that's not going to give and cause us trouble. We want to stick to the details that are clear, that are identified for us, that are certain. Otherwise, we're just going to do violence and trample all over the trees of the forest because not every tree is a climbing tree Not every detail given to us in these visions has some kind of deep and hidden and secret meaning that we're supposed to find. So we will not be climbing every one of the trees in Daniel's visions because, friends, I don't believe we're meant to see further, find hidden messages from every single detail. Not every tree is a climbing tree. So if you've come here and you were hoping I was going to bring you charts and timelines and names, addresses, and Instagram accounts of end times rulers, as well as some personal photos of the Antichrist, I promise you're going to be really disappointed with this sermon and all the ones that follow. Because there are many people who have taken to climb every one of the trees and mine every one of the details in Daniel's visions. They've shaken and broken off many of the branches trying to see higher and further. They've turned over and plucked off so many of the leaves trying to find hidden clues. And they've claimed to find things in the minutia that may or may not actually be there. And others have drawn up detailed timelines and sometimes even given us dates, all of which have come and gone. Because, friends, not every tree is a climbing tree. So we shouldn't treat these visions of Daniel like an episode of Scooby-Doo, you know, where we follow hidden clues until the end of the episode. We finally tear the mask off the dastardly Antichrist and hear him proclaim, I would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for you pesky Bible students. Now, understand what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that there's no benefit in that type of study. In fact, in verses 19 and 20, you heard Willis read for us, Daniel himself seems to have a special interest in the fourth beast with its ten horns and little horn. A lot of interpreters today still have a special interest in that beast and all the horns. But friends, consider if God's intention in this vision is simply to communicate to Daniel and communicate to us specific details of human history and the identity, the exact identity of governments and rulers ahead of time, don't you think he could have done it in a more forthright way? I mean, after all, last week we heard that through the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah, God identified Cyrus the Persian by name many years before Cyrus the Persian came into power. And in the next chapter, in Daniel chapter 8, when we get to that vision, 
There's an authoritative interpreter there who declares this vision is of the kings of Media and Persia and the king of Greece. He actually tells us. So God can and he will explicitly reveal what we are meant to know about history. So not every tree in these visions is a climbing tree. Not every detail is one that we're meant to press to find some kind of secret hidden meaning. So we are going to stick to what the visions themselves or the authoritative interpretations of the vision reveal to us. And so secondly, as we approach these visions, we continue our tree analogy, I guess, because we shouldn't miss the forest for the trees. You know, we should not miss the forest for the trees. God's intention in this vision isn't to name and identify every single tree in the forest, but he's trying to awe Daniel and awe Daniel's initial hearers and awe us today with a grand vision of the whole forest. Friends, God's intention in these visions, more than revealing to us the particulars of human history, is to reveal to us the true nature of reality and even more importantly, to reveal to us himself. God's desire in giving Daniel and us these visions is not just to satiate our curiosity about the future. God's intention is far more that we would know and trust him in the present. Friends, hear that again. God's greatest desire is not to satiate our curiosity about the future, but that his people would trust him in the present. Now, of course, God does reveal things about the future in these visions. However, God is revealing more the nature of reality and the nature of himself than he is the nature of the future. So, friends, I don't intend to spend a lot of time naming individual trees as others have. I intend that we together are going to gaze on the grand forest that God is revealing in these visions. We're going to understand together what God is revealing, not as much about human history, as much as what God is revealing to us, to us about reality itself and about Him and His relationship to this world. So not every tree is a climbing tree, and as such, we're not going to get up, get caught up examining and identifying by name each individual tree because we might lose sight of the forest. Does that make sense? Okay, so what we need to understand as we come to this vision and to all that follow it is what type of literature are we looking at? What type of literature are we studying together? And this is what's called apocalyptic literature. We find a lot of this also in the final book of the Bible, in the book of Revelation. Now, our English word apocalypse comes from the Greek word apocalypsis, which means to reveal or Revelation, hence the name of the final book of the Bible. And that is what the second half of Daniel does. Daniel, the second half and all these visions, is like God is pulling back the curtain to reveal what is really happening in the unseen realities of this world. Just like Dorothy's little dog Toto in The Wizard of Oz pulled back the curtain and revealed the truth that the floating head, which everyone thought was the Wizard of Oz, was actually just an illusion created by a middle-aged man hiding behind the curtain. The vision in the second half of Daniel, all these visions pull back the curtain and they go, do you want to see who's behind the curtain? 
Do you want to see what's really happening in human history? And it reveals to us all the principalities and the powers that are behind the human kingdoms that we see with our own eyes. Now, friends, I believe that the visions of Daniel are more revelation than roadmap. Again, this is, I think, more revelation than roadmap for the future. It's revealing what is more than it's revealing what will be. But we're truly seeing now what was and what is and what will be. We're revealing what's going on behind it all. And we want to remember, who's Daniel writing to? Daniel himself is an exile in Babylon. He's, he's far away from his homeland of Israel. He's, he's a captive. And all the people, his people, God's people, are scattered as exiles within Babylon. And he receives this vision. It's for him and for God's people. This exiled and oppressed people, you know what they needed most? They didn't need most to have their curiosity satiated about forthcoming governments. What they needed was a revelation of God's power. They needed a revelation of God far more than they needed a roadmap for the future. The original hearers weren't itching to have their curiosity satisfied with names and dates. The original hearers needed encouragement that God is still sovereign, even though they were a conquered and oppressed people, that the kingdoms that right now oppress them would one day fall. And that God Himself would be victorious. And church, that's the forest that we start to gaze here in Daniel 7. That's what we find in all of these visions in the second half of Daniel. It's interesting because really the visions of the second half of Daniel simply reiterate in a different way the message that we heard over and over and over and over again in the narratives of the first half of Daniel. It's that God's kingdom will prevail. That there is a spiritual battle that's being raged right now in this world, but only one kingdom will ultimately stand, and that is the kingdom of the Ancient of Days. So, friends, as we consider the visions of Daniel 7 and beyond, we need to understand these visions contain fantastical imagery. I mean, this really, it's just straining the very bounds of our human language and our human imagination because Daniel is trying to write down for us things for which there exists no words. He's trying to explain to us the inexplicable. He's trying to help us imagine the unimaginable. I mean, apocalyptic literature, so it strains at language and understanding because it's trying to explain to us truths that are just fantastical and mysterious, but all so true. So we need to understand that apocalyptic literature is highly symbolic. It's very visual. You know, it trades in images far more than in words. And so we see image after image after image as we're trying to express something for which there are really no words to express it. And now as we look at this, we see all kinds of symbols. And some of the symbols that we see would have been familiar to that generation, but are not familiar to us today. I mean, for example, we in America, if we were to look in the daily newspaper, open it up, and we saw a big cartoon there with an elephant and a donkey arguing with one another, we wouldn't start to assume there was a disturbance in the animal kingdom. 
we would assume there was a disturbance in the political kingdom because we know that those are symbols and you don't want to confuse the symbol for the reality. Don't confuse the symbol for the reality. In our culture, we understand the symbol of the elephant represents the Republicans, the symbol of the donkeys, the Democrats. And in the same way, if you open that paper and you saw the image of an eagle in conference with a bulldog, you might assume it's the American eagle in conference with the British bulldog and that America and the United Kingdom were collaborating together. But people from another country or people who live in another generation, the meaning of those might be lost to them. In fact, maybe a future generation will pick up that newspaper and will look and will think those cartoons are prophetic and will start looking for literal eagles to start talking to literal bulldogs and will warn people, be careful, for someday soon the elephants will come down and battle with the donkeys in the street and there will be blood everywhere. So friends, we need to be careful not to mistake the symbol for the reality. And as we interact with the the political cartoons and the caricatures of Daniel or of Revelation, the first job that we have to do is to ask who or what is being represented in this highly symbolic literature so that we don't confuse symbols for reality. And as such, the only place that we are going to be highly dogmatic is when a symbol or image is explained to us, which we do find some of here, in Daniel's first image. Again, those are the trees that we can authoritatively climb and get a better view and see further from. But not every tree in this vision is a climbing tree. Not every symbol gets an exact identification. So we need to be careful which trees we're going to climb and which ones we're going to trust. And we can't let it all detract from our appreciation of the forest. Friends, again, We may not understand every symbol and every image in here, but what we can clearly see is the vast panorama of the forest that opens before us by this and by the other images in Daniel's visions. This is a revelation of reality. This is a revelation of God himself. A revelation meant to encourage Daniel meant to encourage God's people in exile, and it still stands and encourages us today. It's a vision of the Ancient of Days, the one kingdom that will stand against all other kingdoms. Okay, you still with me? Maybe, thank you. That's good. All right, so what is revealed about God and about history in this first vision? First, understand that this one, this one we start on a doozy. This is one of the most enigmatic visions in all of the Old Testament. It is weird. And it's difficult to understand. And I promise you one thing. You will walk out of here still unclear on what it all means. Because I'm still unclear on what it all means. I believe we can see the vast forest and the vision that he's given us. But there's going to be a lot of particulars that we're going to walk out of here still scratching our heads going, wow. So what we're going to do is cling to what is clear and what is explained to us so that we can take, take account of that and stand upon that. So we also want to understand as we look at this first vision that it's actually a hinge vision 
in the book of Daniel. Because we are transitioning from the court narratives of the first six chapters, which we all really liked. And now we're going into the visions of chapter 7 and beyond, which we're already not liking. But it is a hinge vision. And chapter 7 holds a particular place in the structure of this book. Now, we discussed previously, and you might remember, that the majority of our Old Testament is written in the Hebrew language. Almost all of it, except for small sections. And one of the sections that is different is this section that we've been studying. Daniel, chapters 2 through 7, are written in Aramaic. And more than that, and we find, we find this is the very tail end of that Aramaic section. So it went in chapter 2 and switched from Hebrew into Aramaic. 2 through 7 are Aramaic. And after chapter 7, we switch back to Hebrew, and it's Hebrew till the end. So this is both the hinge, because we're going from these narratives to the visions, and it's the last chapter in Aramaic. So what's going on here? Well, friends, I just want to point something out that is not obvious. In, well, number one, it's not obvious to us in our English translations, the change in language. But also what might not be obvious to us is that the Aramaic section here is what's called a chiastic structure. Now, the Greek letter chi looks like a big X. And the chiasm is thought to look like an X because all things funnel into the center and then they come back out and they repeat themselves. In fact, here's an example of a chiasm. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. Now, look at this chiasm. So, going, get, tough, and then what do we do? We repeat with the inverse. Tough, get, going. So, it's A, B, C, C prime, A prime, uh, I mean, C prime, B prime, A prime. And you notice every word has a parallel, and that's a chiastic structure. And friends, the stories in Daniel that we just finished studying are in a chiasm. I mean, look at this next slide. Chapter 2, we saw a dream of a statue that Nebuchadnezzar had with four medals. And now here we are in chapter 7, and we have a dream. I think this is what causes the crackling. We're going to try that. I turned it off. Am I still crackling? I am. Ugh. Snap, crackle, pop. Okay, so chapter 2 has a dream Nebuchadnezzar has with four medals. And now we're in chapter 7. What do we find? A vision with four beasts that are said to represent four kingdoms. In chapter 3, what did we see? God rescued his people from peril out of the fiery furnace. And in chapter... Is there another slide there, Samuel? All right. Come on, I worked a long time on this. I mean, I really want to make sure it gets up there. Okay. God rescues his people from the fiery furnace. Chapter 6, what did we see? God rescued Daniel from the lion. And then at the very center in chapter 4, we saw King Nebuchadnezzar. He was humbled and restored. But we saw King Belshazzar. He refused to be humbled and he was judged. So look, the stories are in a chiastic structure. And everyone has a parallel. So we're actually meant to read them and to see the similarities and the differences between these different accounts. Which means, as we look at this vision of chapter 7, it does have some relationship to the vision of chapter 2. There's similarities and there's differences. In Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar had this dream of a great statue made of four metals. 
a head of gold, a chest and arms of silver, middle and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, feet partly of iron, partly of clay. And then this stone that was cut out by no human hand struck and shattered the image. The stone became a great mountain. It filled the earth. And Daniel interpreted the dream to Nebuchadnezzar that he said, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold, and after you will follow other kingdoms represented by the other metals of the statue. But in the final days, he declares in the interpretation, chapter 2, verse 44, in the days of those kings, meaning the final kings, God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall this kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. It shall stand forever. So four kingdoms represented by four metals, and then the Lord sets up a kingdom that destroys the power of all those other kingdoms, and that kingdom stands forever. Daniel chapter 7, Daniel receives a vision of four beasts, which the heavenly messenger explains to Daniel in verses 17 and 18. He says, these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. So both visions are explained to be human kingdoms. Both visions depict God coming and crushing and setting up a triumphant kingdom over all these human kingdoms, a kingdom that will never be destroyed. But friends, while these visions do have some similarities, and they are set up in the chiastic structure parallel to each other, we still need to remember there are two different visions, and they have different verses, purposes, and they reveal different things. So Nebuchadnezzar sees this vision of four kingdoms, and they're magnificent in this terrifying but yet magnificent statue. Now the kingdoms, what were they represented by? Beautiful, valuable, useful metals and materials. Friends, from a human perspective, the kingdoms of this world are beautiful, valuable, and wonderful. But then we come to Daniel's vision, and what I think is happening here is the curtain is being pulled back on the human kingdoms of this world. And it's horrible. From a human perspective, Nebuchadnezzar looks and says, look at how valuable and beautiful and powerful and wonderful are the human kingdoms of this world. And Daniel 7 goes, no, no, let me show you what's really going on behind the scenes of the human kingdoms of this world. And it's horrible. I mean, verse 2 of Daniel's vision, these four beasts rise from the sea, and it says the sea's been stirred up by the four winds of heaven. Friends, four winds, four corners, four compass points, north, south, east, west. It's a common way of depicting all of the earth. So, And the sea, in ancient Near Eastern thought, was often a place of chaos and death and destruction. So from the chaos of the sea, stirred up by all the evil from all over the earth, carried by the four winds, four horrible beasts arise. And friends, the beasts are hideous. They're, they're deformed. Remember when God created all the beasts of the earth in Genesis 1? It repeatedly says He created each of them according to their various kinds. But yet these beasts are unnatural. They're like bits of, bits of animals hobbled together in these unnatural ways which would make such creatures ceremonially unclean and just grotesque to the Hebrew readers. Friends, while on its face, 
The people of this world may look at the human kingdoms of this world and go, look at how glorious and terrifying and beautiful they are. But when the curtain's pulled back, what's going on with the human powers and kingdoms of this world? It's hideous. It's unclean, these forces at work in this world. Because as we discussed last week, when the Medo-Persian Empire conquered the Chaldean Empire and took control of Babylon, friends, they were under new management. Remember that? Under new management, but it was the same old Babylon. Because the forces behind human cultures continue, often unseen. There's spiritual forces at work. In the New Testament, the Lord pulls the curtain aside even more through the Apostle Paul. And in Ephesians 6.12, he writes, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Friends, behind the human cultures and kingdoms of this world are principalities, powers, forces, which are very real and are very active, but we don't see them. And in fact, later on in these visions of Daniel, we actually meet and we hear about some of them. But this vision begins to to pull aside the curtain for us and reveal the spiritual reality of the unseen realm. Friends, there's a spiritual battle being waged between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of God. But notice, for as terrible and awful as these beasts appear... There is clear and repeated evidence that God is still sovereign over them. Friends, the first feast, verse 4, it says its wings were plucked off and it was made to stand and was given the mind of a man. Clearly, there's a power greater than that beast at work. In the same way, the second beast receives and obeys an order, a command, arise, devour much flesh. Someone or something of greater authority was over that beast. And finally, in verse 6, it says the third beast was given dominion. The only one who can give dominion is one who is greater, giving it to one who is lesser. Friends, none of these beasts are autonomous. The kingdoms of this world are fearsome and they dark powers are at work. But God remains sovereign because His kingdom and His power are supreme. Now, considering it's parallel with Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2, there's a traditional interpretation of these four kingdoms. The traditional interpretation is that the first beast, this lion, was symbolic of Babylon. And we do find a lion and even a winged lion often in, in, uh, in the art of that time representing Babylon. Many believe that the lopsided bear was Medo-Persia, because Persia was greater than the Medes, and so it was lopsided. And the kingdom was hungry for destruction and expansion, already starting to consume the other nations, the three ribs in its mouth. The winged leopard with four wings and four heads is often believed to be Greece, because Alexander the Great followed, and he conquered in every direction, north, south, east, and west, like the four heads. And in ten short years, he swiftly conquered all of the known world. And many believe the fourth beast was Rome. Vast, terrible, of a greater power and a greater longevity than any of the other kingdoms that came before it. Now, friends, are these images God giving us history in advance? Or is this a true and yet symbolic theological statement about the battle that rages between good and evil? 
Could it be that the four great beasts from the sea stirred up by the four great winds of heaven represent evil from every one of the four compass points, evil from all the earth rising up and continuing in government after government after government its its opposition to the Lord? Could this be a visual representation of the battle that rages between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world? You know, friends, even if four specific four specific historical kingdoms are referred to here, it's clear from this vision that something even greater is going on. Something that transcends these temporal human kingdoms. Because, remember, it says at the beginning, Daniel received this vision during the reign of King Belshazzar in Babylon. And while this vision started in known history, notice the further that it gets from Daniel, the more fantastical it gets, to the point where we come to this fourth beast, The fourth beast is so incredible, Daniel can't even relate it to any other known earthly creature. That's how amazing and mind-blowing it is. It's getting further and further and less and less clear. What is coming? What is that that's ahead? It's horrible. I can see it's horrible, but what is it? So again, the identity of the beasts. Is this a tree that we're meant to climb to see further? Or is this just imagery meant to point us to the great and terrible power of evil and to help us imagine the unimaginable that has and does rage as the kingdoms of this world, kingdom after kingdom after kingdom, stand in opposition to the kingdom of God? The arrival of these beasts on the scene is interrupted. Friends, it's interrupted by a throne room vision. In stark contrast to everything we've seen up to this point, the chaos of the sea, the arrival of the four beasts, suddenly we're given a vision of the peace and the order of God's throne. God calls court and He brings to judgment all the kingdoms of the world. God is declared here to be the Ancient of Days. And these human kingdoms, friends, they may have their day, but God is the Ancient of Days. The kingdoms of this world may have their day, but God is the Ancient of Days. Friends, He is the one who will be proven to be on the right side of history. God is the Ancient of Days. He always has been, and He always will be. And the thrones that are in the room symbolize dominion and authority. His white clothing symbolizes purity, perfection, holiness in His judgments and all of His dealings with humanity. His white hair on His head is a sign of wisdom. The fiery flames from His throne are a symbol of judgment. And it has wheels. Friends, if you wanted something to be portable, you need to put wheels on it. And God's justice will travel. God's justice and judgment extends to all people, in all places, at all times. God is powerful. He's attended by thousands upon thousands of heavenly beings. They're all ready to do His will and enforce His judgments. And the books are open. A time of judgment has come. Now, friends, I want to again remind you that symbol is not reality. Is God really an old man, the ancient of days? Does He really have white hair? Does God, who is a spirit, sit on a literal throne? When Daniel tells us that the numbers of the angels was going one, two, three, oh, no. Friends, the symbol is not the reality. Not every tree is a climbing tree. All the symbolic language is meant to describe to us the indescribable and explain to us the inexplicable. Daniel is putting words to that for which there are no adequate words. How do you describe God? 
Friends, these are absolutely true statements, but it's symbolic. So whether we're discussing the details about the beasts or the details about God, just God, just be careful not to confuse the symbol for the reality. These fantastical images and the visions are meant to convey to us the absolute unyielding truth, but they do it symbolically. And we see God in all of His majesty and all of His power on display for us and the tranquility of the throne room as opposed to the chaos caused by the kingdoms of this world. But then we see the tranquility of the throne room disturbed. Verse 11, I looked, and then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. Well, that was anticlimactic. And it's supposed to be. Friends, it's supposed to be. For all of its fearsome noise and appearance and action, for all of the terror and raging and power and destruction of the kingdoms of this world, the great beast is destroyed like that by the Ancient of Days. Friends, the cosmic battle of good against evil is not a battle of equal. God has no equal. There is none who can equal Him. There is no evil that can or will oppose God. Evil is judged and dispatched without fanfare and without seeming effort. We need fear no evil because our God is the Ancient of Days. And verse 12 says, As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Well, it's further indication that in regard to the beast in this vision, we are dealing with far more than human kingdoms. Because if the beasts merely represent Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece, how can the dominion of human kingdoms be taken away, yet their lives prolonged, especially as these kingdoms have long faded into history? Now, friends, we have to stop here this week because your eyes are all glazing over. But there's more in this vision, and most excitingly is verse 13, which is where we're going to start next week. Because in verse 13, a new player steps onto history's stage. And friends, this player is so important that he's going to be the focus of next week. Because one who is like the Son of Man appears. Who is this? Tune in next week. However, for this week, and where we are in this enigmatic, mysterious vision, let's celebrate together the clear, the clear and unquestionable view of the forest. And what do we see? Evil's time is limited. Its days are numbered. The Ancient of Days is and will be victorious. Friends, that is the message that the discouraged and oppressed exiles in Babylon needed to hear. And that is the message that many of you here today needed to hear. That God is sovereign. That His kingdom is eternal. That one day all of the oppressive kingdoms of man and all evil will fall. So friends, no matter what you and I face today... God wins. He has no rival. He has no equal. He will dispatch evil without fanfare, for our God is the Ancient of Days. And friends, the kingdoms of this world and the powers of evil may look fearsome and powerful today. Evil may seem to flourish and prosper for a time. And like the chaotic waters of the sea stirred up by the wind from all four directions, they may destroy and kill. But as the psalmist sung for us, in Psalm 46, 
God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives away, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its flood. We will not fear, for our God is the Ancient of Days. And as we're about to close singing, though the nations rage, though the kingdoms rise and fall, there is still, and friends, there always will be one king reigning over all. So I will not fear, for this truth remains, that my God is the Ancient of Days. Is He your hope and your trust and your confidence today? Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You that no matter what we face, no matter as kingdoms rise and fall, no matter as evil assails, we remember You, our God, who is the Ancient of Days. Our hope is in You. May we see You. May we hear You. May we know You. May we follow You. And may You be glorified in and through us today and forevermore. Amen.